We're continuing our sermon series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're currently on question 53. So last week in our sermon series, we finished the sermons that pertain to the second commandment. So we're starting the third commandment today. And as with the second commandment, there are four questions in the catechism that relate to the to the third commandment. So we'll be taking these up one at a time. The first question has to do with just what this commandment is. So let's confess together. Let's confess in unison uh, the answer to question 53. Question 53, which is the third commandment? The third commandment is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Now today, I want to do an overview of this commandment and looking at what the words mean. And then I want to show you today how it relates to the other two commandments that we've already looked at. These first three commandments, how they kind of relate to each other and sort of draw some comparisons and things for that. So... For our scripture reading, I've selected Exodus 20, 1 through 17, which is the Ten Commandments, since we're looking at the relationship between the first three commandments to each other. So I will read this to you now. It's important for us to hear the law of God and to to know what he has given us as far as our duty is concerned. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your, your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And there we end the reading of God's holy word. May he bless to us the hearing of his holy word. The third commandment, perhaps of all of the commandments is one that is often understood in a very, very superficial and shallow way. I know that when I was growing up, 
I thought it was nothing other than just using God's name as a curse word. Now, of course, it does speak to that, but it certainly goes much farther than that which is on the surface. I thought that other than that, it didn't have much to say, but I was, I was quite wrong. This is the commandment that addresses the heart of the, of the uh, professing believer perhaps more than any of the other commandments. The one on covetousness does as well, which comes at the end of our duty to our neighbor. But this is at the um, kind of the, almost the end of our duty to God. The Sabbath is also about our duty to God. But of these first three commandments that kind of go together, this is the one that especially speaks to our heart. Let's begin, as I've already suggested, by looking at the meaning of the words that are used in the third commandment. They'll help us to see the fullness of this commandment. What does it mean, first of all, when it speaks about the name of the Lord? Well, a name is that which defines a person and that distinguishes one person from another. If I want to distinguish uh, one of our elders, uh, Dave Alexander, from other people, I do what I just did. I say his name. Immediately you know who I'm talking about if you know him. I speak his name and then you know that I mean Dave Alexander rather than Andy Kubik, one of our deacons. All I had to do was say their names and there's a definition there. It's a, you know who I'm talking about. It distinguishes them. And if you're someone who has visited the church and you say that... Um, then there are other ways to say that person's name in the way that the Bible uses name. See, like uh, if I want to distinguish one person from another, then, then their name is not always enough. I, I, I can say that Dave is the guy that leads uh, worship in the morning service in, in Halifax, or that he is Gina's husband. Maybe you know her, or or Sarah, who's with us today, that it's her dad. And then you have, again, a definition of who I'm talking about. If I'm talking to someone about God, and they don't know what I mean when I say God, then I can say the true God who made heaven and earth. And then I distinguish him from all other gods. The God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I distinguish him from those that gods that people would claim that made heaven and earth that are not the father of Jesus Christ. I can say the God of all gods, the self-existing one, the almighty, and many other things. Those are all ways of naming God and distinguishing him from all others. The shorter catechism in this commandment, if you look at the following questions, 54 and 55, they distinguish for us what the name means, or they tell us is a definition of what the name, the word name means here in the commandment. In question 55, it gives us a very concise definition. It says that God's name is anything whereby he maketh himself known. So we, God reveals himself, that is his name. It's how he's revealed to us. It involves any of millions of ways that God 
has made himself known. Now, question 54, though, it gives you a list of ways that God has made himself known. All of those things that make up God's name. It says his, his names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Those are all ways, different ways that God makes himself known to us. To illustrate further, using Dave Alexander, who he's not, he's not here, of course, because he's in Halifax. He'll be hearing this sermon uh, later today. <laughs> but uh, just think of how some of the things in this list of things that make up a name would apply to him. His names, well, his name, Dave, Alexander, those are his names. His titles, he's an elder, he's a father, he's a husband. You could have his job title. I don't even know exactly what his job title is. Um, his attributes, we might say that there's wisdom and, and gentleness, love, loyalty, friendliness. There's many ways that we could describe him. His ordinances would include things like he has an ordinance for his children to obey their father and mother that he enforces in his home. Or he gathers his family for worship. They have an ordinance of, of gathering to, to worship God. His word would include anything that he's ever said, really. His opinions, his promises that he has made would be more officially his word. And uh, letters and emails that he may have written. His works would be his service as, his, as an elder. Maybe the, uh, he, he put all the, the molding and trim up in his house. That would be one of his works. Or the projects that he does in his job, manufacturing um, airplane parts and things. All of these things together make up the name that is brought in a very concise way simply by saying Dave Alexander. They're that by which he is known. Now, the way the Bible uses the word name encompasses all of these things. Thus, when it says that we're not to take God's name in vain, it's talking about any way that he has revealed himself. We're not to take in vain. His names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. It's not just talking about refraining from using his name as a curse word. Although, again, that's certainly included. And we're going to look at the, the details about that more and how heinous a thing it is to use God's name as a curse word in the weeks to come. But it's talking here overall about reverencing him in all of the ways that he's known so that how God is known to us, that, that it has weight. To us. Well, let me explain more. We need to move on and consider what it means to take God's name. The word take, nasa in the Hebrew language, simply means to lift up or to carry. It's a very common word. It occurs 650 times or so in the Old Testament. This word is used, for example, of Noah's Ark when it was lifted up in the waters. It's used of the priests, something simple like the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They, they carried it. They lifted it up and carried it. They took it, as it were. Uh, there are all sorts of ways that you take God's name. You take God's name when you speak about God. You take His name on your lips. You take His name when you think about Him. What is revealed about him when you consider maybe you're angry at God about something. Maybe you're thankful to God for something. You carry his name in your mind. You take his name when you confess him as your God. That's when you especially take 
God's name. When you confess that he is your God, you become identified with him and associated with him as one who is called his own. You're one who confesses God. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You are baptized in his name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in fact. You take his name when you do works in his name. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about those who say, Have we not done many wonderful works in your name? You take his name whenever you receive the benediction at church. In number six, the Lord speaks to Moses about this, and he says, it's number 623. He says, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then it adds, So, whenever they do this, they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. See, you must not take God's name that's put upon you in vain, as if that doesn't mean anything. Receiving the benediction reminds us that as God's people, we are those who represent him. We bear his name. It reminds us that we are those who have his blessing and his favor upon us. He is identified with us. He is our God, and we are his people. This is so important and so useful to have that, to be reminded of that, that the benediction is something that was not only done by the priests in the Old Testament, but that God appointed to be done in the New Testament as well. In the epistles that are written, there are benedictions in almost all of them. Sometimes Paul gets carried away, and there's, there's three or four benedictions, at the, like at the end of Romans. Um, there, there's, or Thessalonians, you have multiple benedictions. Be mindful of the fact, though, that as a Christian, when the name of God is placed upon you, it associates you as those who belong to him. Taking God's name is something that every one of you ought to do. In fact, it's what we are called to do in the first commandment. Having no other gods means that you're to have, remember there's a positive side to that, that you're to have the true God as God in your God. To take his name, to confess him, to take him as your God. The Shorter Catechism puts it plainly. The first commandment requireth us to know and acknowledge God to be the only true God in our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly. Taking his name means that you are to take all that God has revealed about himself. And of course, as we've seen, God's revealed himself in a whole host of ways. But central to everything, how has God especially revealed himself? He has revealed himself through the Lord Jesus Christ, who came here in the flesh. This is how he is most clearly revealed to us. And then Christ is revealed to us in the written word. We are, all to, re- we are to receive all that God has given us in Christ. We are to receive him, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. We are to take him, you see, take his name, take him, and then to confess him before the world, to declare his name to the people of the world. In the New Testament, we're told that those who come to Christ are not only to believe with the heart, but also to confess with their lips 
that he is Lord. Romans 10, 8 through 10 says the word is near you. We read this earlier. In your mouth and in your heart, that word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The New Testament shows this is not just a casual confession. We're commanded to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then we are to continue in that confession at the Lord's Supper where we officially renew and avow afresh that we belong to Him. If we do not continue in our profession, the elders are to plead with us to return to our profession. And if we will not hear, to remove us from the church. That's why we don't allow those who are not under the care and discipline an oversight of a church that confesses the truth about Jesus to come to the Lord's table. It's not just a private confessing, you see, that's called for, but a public confession under the oversight of elders with the lips and with the life maintained. You're, You're to take his name and you're to continue in his name. Okay, so that's taking his name. So, so now, Let's look at what it means to take his name in vain. I've already kind of mentioned it somewhat. But from what we've already looked at, you can see that it's not a question of taking his name or not taking his name. It's of taking his name in vain or not in vain is what we're talking about. So it's taking his name, but how do you take his name? Do you take it in vain or do you take it not in vain? The first commandment tells us to take his name But the third commandment tells us not to take his name in vain. So what does it mean? Something is done in vain when it is empty, when it is meaningless, worthless, useless. And you do something in vain when you do it is only an outward action, only a show. The same word translated vain, shav, is used in Psalm 6011 when it says, Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. The word useless is the word vain. When a storm breaks out, like we saw in the passage this morning, you can call on the other disciples in the boat to do something about the storm. They can't do anything. The help of man is useless. It's vain. You call on them in vain. But you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ And he is able to calm the storm. You did not call on him in vain. Now, when we take God's name in vain, though, the problem is not the one that we call upon, okay, that their help is in vain, but that our calling is in vain. Because if we take his name in an empty, unbelieving, insincere way, then we're taking his name in vain. Hosea uses the word shav of a false promise. He says, they have ten, Hosea 10.4, they have spoken words swearing falsely in making a covenant. Do people ever make covenants with God where they swear falsely? They say the right thing, but they do it in an insincere, hypocritical way? Of course they do. It's an empty promise. It's a worthless promise. We have a lot of marriages in our congregation In each case, a man and a woman have entered into a covenant. But if they swore in vain, they took their vows 
falsely. Their promises were empty. They were worthless. They were meaningless. But still, they took their vows. In fact, their problem and the reason they're guilty and the reason they're capable of committing adultery or being covenant breakers is because they did formally take vows. They didn't mean it, so there's a problem in how they did it, but they still did take those vows and are obliged to carry them out. They took them in vain, though. You see, this is exactly parallel to taking God's name in vain. You confess His name, but there's no substance to it. There's no meaning to it. There's no heart to it. There's no faith with your confession. The key ingredient required in taking God's name in any of the ways that we take it is faith. But without faith, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, sees coming to God, must first believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. You take God's name in vain, first of all, if you don't believe that he really is. That is, you don't believe that he is what he says he is. You don't really believe that he is holy, that he is all-knowing, that he is wise, that he is almighty. You take God's name in vain when you don't believe also that he rewards those who diligently seek him. You don't really believe the gospel. You don't really take it to heart. You're still... You're, you're, you're going to rely on what you do. You're going to rely on your goodness, your works. You're, you, you take his name in vain. You don't really believe in heaven. You don't take that seriously. You don't really believe in the judgment to come. There's no real trembling in you. There's no real concern there. No repentance. No real humility. It's all in vain. To put it together then, in the third commandment, the Lord is telling you that you're to have a high regard for his name. You're to respect Everything that is revealed about him. All that is associated with him. Now, you're not to brush him off. As if God is irrelevant. As if his word is irrelevant. As if it has no bearing in your life. Just the opposite. Everything about God is to be of the utmost importance to you. This is what is talked about in the scripture when we speak of fearing God. It's the right kind of fear where you realize that he is the almighty one. He is the dominant one. He is the one that has our destiny. And when we see who he is, then we take him seriously, you might say. So now that you have a basic understanding of the third commandment, let's look at how the third commandment relates to the first two commandments. We're going to look at this in a whole bunch of different ways. And I think it will help you to see these relationships. First, what is the main point of each commandment? Well, the point of the first commandment is that the true God is the only God and that you're to worship Him. The main point of the second is that you're to worship Him only as He commands. And the point of the third is that you're to con- your worship is to come from the heart. You might worship none but the true God and you might do only the things that He has commanded to be done in worship. But if you take His name in vain then you're just going through the motions of your worship. You're not really connecting with God at all. You're just drawing near to him with your lips when your heart is far away, something that Isaiah complained about. Your lips are singing praise, and Jesus echoed that as well as a great concern of his. Your lips are singing praise, but you're not maybe even thinking about what you're saying or not believing it if you are thinking about it. 
What an affront it is to our great God to come and, and tell about His majesty and not even believe in His majesty. Have you ever done that before? Have you ever done come before God in a thoughtless way? Of course you have. We all have. It's not a time that you come and worship God that you really reverence God in His holy name as you should. God is a holy God. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need His forgiveness. No one can come and say, oh, I've never, I, I, I've never sinned. <laughs> we deserve to go to hell for the way that we worship every week. Really, we do. It's only by God's mercy in Christ that there is cleansing and forgiveness. And He receives our worship if it's done, shall I say, relatively sincerely. In other words, we're coming to Him with a true desire to worship Him and to come before Him. But we come so short. We don't measure up. And and see, we can glory in that because we know that we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. Next, consider how each of these commandments is related to the Trinity. Now, of course, all three of these commandments relate to all three persons of the Trinity. But there is a sense in which each one represents to a different or or the the center of it is sort of of a different member of the Trinity. So the first commandment is centered particularly around God the Father. We're to worship Him who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our worship is focused on the Father. Jesus Christ is our mediator, you see, as we come to the Father. The worship terminates, especially upon the Father. Jesus reconciles us to the Father. He shows us the Father. He tells us to pray to the Father in His name. He leads us to give thanks to the Father. He tells us that He is the way to the Father. So there is a focus on the, in the first commandment on the Father. The second commandment is centered especially around God the Son. Because the second commandment tells us to come to the God in the way that He has appointed. Not in an idolatrous way that we make up, but in the way that He has appointed. And the only way to come to God the Father is, as I was just saying, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the mediator, like we saw when we studied the second commandment, and He is the true revelation of the Father. It is through Jesus that the Father is known, and it is through Jesus that we are reconciled to the Father, that the gospel is revealed. We come to Him through faith in Jesus who is crucified. And then the third commandment, oh, and we break the second commandment when we come in a different way, when we come in an idolatrous way. We come to maybe the true God in one sense. We're not really coming to him, but thinking of the true God, like the Jews that rejected Christ, but we come to him in some different way by our works. You see, we're breaking the second commandment. Okay, now the third commandment is centered particularly around the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is the one who works in our hearts so that we truly do believe, and so that we're truly convicted of our sin, and so that we find comfort in the gospel, that we believe the promises that God made. Without the Holy Spirit, we worship in vain. Even if our words are right, and even if we go to the right God, it's all in vain. Now let's consider what the core sin is that's related to each commandment. We might say that the core sin of the first commandment is spiritual adultery. Remember when we studied the first commandment not long ago and we looked at the transgressions of that commandment and we looked at Ezekiel 16 where the people were accused of harlotry because they were relying on the Egyptians and the Assyrians 
for their salvation instead of the living God. The Lord said that his people were harlots of an unusual kind because they paid their lovers rather than being paid by their lovers. This is what we do when we sacrifice what we have, okay, payment for our happiness. We give things up for our happiness in order or our protection or whatever it is from the world, looking for happiness from the world instead of seeking happiness from the Lord. Okay, so that's the uh, first commandment. Now, the core sin, uh, so the core sin of the first commandment is spiritual adultery. The core sin of the second commandment is idolatry. Instead of receiving the revelation we have from God through Christ and the gospel and approaching him through Christ and the ordinances of the gospel, we come up with our own way to draw near to God. We make an idol of God. As I described to you when we study that commandment, we make him into a like a Mr. Potato Head that we can take bits off that we don't like and put on the bits that we do want. We decide, for example, that we don't want God to be so holy as he is. So we diminish his holiness a bit. We just turn it down a little bit. And uh, that God is able to accept our good works because he's not so holy. And so we don't really need an atoning sacrifice. From, and we begin to modify how we come to God. We, we, we decide that how we want it to be, we, what we think is better is if in our pitiful human wisdom we could define what the true God should be like. We say, I don't like, for God. I, can't, I can't serve a God like that. You're, you don't get to choose. We change the face of God because we don't like Him the way He is. We saw that in Romans 1, didn't we? We change the truth of God into a lie. And our foolish heart is darkened so that we're turned over to more and more and more darkness and God becomes like a creature, like four-footed beasts or like, like a human. We, we diminish God. That's the second commandment, idolatry. It's the core sin of the second commandment. The core sin of the third commandment is unbelief. We have no real love for God or for the gospel, no fear of judgment, no real conviction of sin. God is pushed in the shadows. It's not important. He's disrespected. We're quite indifferent about what is revealed of the living God. It's amazing to me. Someone says, oh, well, I'm kind of busy. You know, I can't really read the Bible. I can't really go to church. I can't really, because that's kind of irrelevant stuff. It doesn't really carry any weight in my life. I've got important things to do, like my job, and, and I'm, I'm studying, I'm a student, I've got these, these really important things. Important things. See, that's the whole idea. Our religion becomes cold and formal in that way. It's just like going through the rituals. Next, we compare the three commandments. As we compare the three commandments, I want you to consider how there is a progression when we go away from God. There's a progression that we move through the commandments. Where does that progression first begin? It's with this third commandment. When there's apostasy, like a new generation grows up and they don't embrace their parents' faith. We see that happen all the time. Look at some of the churches in our land completely turned away from God. How does that progression come about? We looked at the progression with the second commandment itself. Let's look at how it progresses through these first three commandments. Rebellion begins when you are still going through the motions of proper worship and worshiping the true God. But you do it with a cold heart. The warning that was given by Jesus to the Ephesians that you have lost your first love. You come to God in vain, not really connecting with Him at all. 
not moved by the truth of God or the promises of God or the warnings of God, they don't have any impact on you. They don't carry any weight. That's a violation of the third commandment. You're a hypocrite. But what happens after that? This rebellion in the heart, it's not going to stay contained inside. It's going to get out. You're not, you've not been truly engaged with God and His ordinances, so you want to change God's ordinances. You start, as we saw last week, looking at the second commandment, by downplaying certain parts of the gospel that you don't like as much. Things that you're ashamed of. Remember how we talked about that? Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Like the Bible's teaching about judgment. Or that Jesus is the only way. Oh, people don't respect that very much in the world. Well, you know, there must be other ways to God. Because see, you're taking what is revealed about God in vain. Or sexual purity. Well, you know, there's other, other ways to look at that. And you start to twist God's word around. You're, you're, you're taking it in vain. It's like, it, it's, did God speak or not? And soon you're rejecting parts of the Bible as being the true word of God. You've gone from worshiping in vain to worshiping God in your own way now. So now you've added to the third commandment, worshiping, coming to God in vain. It's, it's worked itself out now in what you're visibly doing. You're preaching a different gospel. You've got a different way of coming to God. Different ordinances of worship that you have, you've brought about. Then second commandment idolatry leads to first commandment idolatry. Once you change the way that God is approached, you'll soon see little difference between the God of Islam or the God of gods of Hinduism or just uh, you know, decent living principles that people have in the world, that they moral people and you know, they're trying to be good and all of that. And you'll be right, you know. You'll, you'll say there's not, there's not much difference between what I believe and what they believe. And it's true, there's not. You, there's not any difference anymore because you have forsaken the true God. You have made God indistinguishable from all of these other gods and religions and whatnot. They're all the same from that perspective. You end up worshiping other gods in violation of the first commandment. But you see, it all began how? Where did the rebellion begin? It began in the heart when you were cold and formal in your worship and you weren't connecting in the worship. Then it led to approaching him in different ways and then it led to a whole different God whole different God. Now let's consider what the church looks like in relation to each of these commandments when the church is violating them. When the first commandment is violated, you have those multi-faith services. That's what the church does, where you have a a Jewish rabbi and a a Muslim imam or a Roman Catholic priest and a Buddhist monk, maybe an animist is thrown into the mix, whoever you can round up for your religious service. And uh, you pray together and you talk about how great it is to be united and, you know, how we're all unified together in these things. You're worshiping other gods. There's actually a service here in this community next week that we as a church have been invited to. It's at three o'clock on Sunday afternoon on the 18th. And it's a, a memorial service for the tragedy that happened here last year. They said they were going to have spiritual leaders here. This is the kind of thing that we'll be talking about. There'll be people with different religions, different gods. It's not something that we as God's people should participate in 
because they're calling on the names of different gods. It's not all the same God. When the second commandment is violated by the church, you worship God, but you have all sorts of innovations in your worship. These can be, as we saw when we studied the second commandment, either those of the traditional kind, where you have, you know, incense and robes and the big paper hats and waving your hands over things and ringing bells and turning things into things and all, all kinds of different things going on, ceremonies and, that God hasn't instituted going on. Or it can be the non-traditional kind, where, I, like I told you about the guy that was, you know, out in, in if uh, Clovis had been preaching this morning, he would have been out in a little boat, like we would have had a tub up here, and he'd been s- sitting in a little boat floating along. Saw a guy actually doing this. He had a big old lake, and they had rain coming down from the ceiling, and thunder and lightning going, and he talked about the storm, and how scary it was, and all these things. Then, second commandment idolatry, that's, that's what the church does. It does things like that. It can be the 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 traditional stuff, the ancient traditions of the church that don't go back to the apostles. Or it can be these innovations that are going on. Preaching and singing and praise and the things that God has commanded us to do get watered down or distorted and perverted in various ways. And then when there's a third commandment, when the third commandment is violated, what does the church look like? Well, then you have people that are doing everything right. They're, they're, they're obeying God's, how he's told us to approach him as far as uh, what they're doing. They're, they're only doing the things that God has commanded, you words, sacraments, prayer, uh, all, all the ordinances of worship that he has given us. And uh, they're, they're coming to no other God but the true God. They wouldn't think of naming another God than the true God or the God that has revealed himself in the Bible. But... They're bitter, cold-hearted, and not moved by what they're doing, except that they're irritated if somebody else doesn't do it that way. Like the Pharisees, they go through all the motions, and they do all the right things, but their heart is far away. They're arrogant, half-asleep. Maybe they're angry. Maybe there's bitterness toward God, bitterness toward others. They have a form, but they deny the power. They don't know what it is to have conviction of sin anymore. They don't know what it is to see that they need to change to conform to Christ's ways. They don't know what it is to receive His promises and be comforted that they, a sinner, have received mercy from God. They're dead even though they go through all of the forms. That's third commandment violation. And now finally, I want, you to sh- I want to show you how far the violation of each of these commandments extends. In order, words, to, where, to what level is it seen in the people that are around us? Well, the violation of the first commandment is often a sin of the whole society. You have people worshiping all these different gods in the community, gods that are not the true God. It is a confused community that prides itself in their tolerance, but in fact does not regard the true God. Certainly there are those among them that may be true in a whole society. You have a mixture that way. But this sin is a sin of the entire community, like it is in our land today. 
You see, we should, if we did what the commandments would teach us to do, all of us, all across Canada, should be worshiping the one true God. People worshiping other gods do not make you personally guilty, personally guilty, but they, you do share a corporate guilt in your land. When God brings judgment on the nation, everyone will suffer. But his people, they will suffer too, like Daniel and his friends did. But they will be brought nearer to God because God is with them if they themselves are worshiping the true God. Violation of the second commandment, it, it doesn't really extend into the whole community. It reaches a ceiling, you might say, or its, it's, it's scope with the church. Last week, we saw how God warns his people that the sins of the fathers of his people will be visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those that hate the Lord. When one generation is ashamed of the gospel, different parts of it, they start to modify it, like not to talk about the wrath of God or whatever is not popular in their day. Uh, and they, they don't speak about those parts. They just neglect it. They still believe it, but they, don't, they neglect it. Then the next generation believes those lies, and then they add more and more lies, and the idolatry increases, and that's when you get either the traditionalism I talked about before or the innovations in worship. You, worship becomes perverted. It's a church thing. Like the community is not out there work, gathering together to worship God, so that's why I say it extends to the church The third commandment, though, how far does it extend? It doesn't get outside of you as an individual. I mean, there are ways that it can, of course, in a certain way. But nobody can see when you're taking God's name in vain, at least when it begins. Because it's something that occurs in your heart. It will show up in lots of ways, I suppose, but it can be entirely hidden from others for a very long time just going through the motions, but have no true regard for the Lord God and for his name and for his gospel. God says, however, that you will not go unpunished if you do this. We're going to spend a whole, a whole sermon on the, where, where it says that at the end of the commandment. But he sees it. Even though no human court or no court of the church can charge you with this, Civil magistrate can't see it. The church can't see it. You can't see what's in your heart. They can't know what you think, what's going on in there. So people might think, well, I'm okay. There's no law. I don't get caught. I don't get in trouble. My church leaders don't know that I don't really care or regard God. I look okay on the outside. But you're not. Jesus says that in the day of judgment, when you come before him and you say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in your name? Don't you remember I I went to church, I prayed to you, I I even told people about Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. You're not better, but worse off for having taken his name. Because you took his name in vain. Though you may have been active in a solid church, He will call you out for your unbelief and your hypocrisy. You may have fooled other people, but you cannot fool Jesus Christ. So I hope that that helps you to see the place of these first three commandments and how they relate to each other. 
we should be very thankful that God has given us these three commandments to keep us on track. There's a kind of a fullness here that is very helpful for us for our whole life. The Lord leaves no stone unturned, no worship of other gods, no worship of the true God in our own way or changing how he's revealed to us, no indifference toward the true God as he has revealed to us. Taking God's name in vain is the great hidden sin of the church. It can certainly be very visible when God's name is used as a curse word or to embellish someone's speech. You can say, oh, they took God's name in vain. Yeah, then you see it. But it can also lay hidden, as I said, from the view of everyone. For example, it can be hidden in the heart of a young person who grew up in the church and who seemed eager, but who never really had any regard for God. Or this unbelief can be in the heart of a new member, a a new member that has a wonderful conversion story. And they can tell about maybe they were, you know, uh, caught up with drugs and, and drunkenness and sexual morality and all kinds of blasphemy and, and whatnot. And, and then they had, had, had completely turned their life around. But maybe they did that in a social way, but not before the true God. You can't see that. Maybe it's a seasoned pastor. And that pastor... He suddenly does something that surprises everyone. He runs off with another woman other than his wife or something. And everyone's, what what happened? That man was worshiping God in vain. He was outwardly coming, but inwardly he was far away. And so now it's shown itself. It's come to be visible what was there all along. In truth, he departed from the living God long ago. He was drawing near with his lips, but his heart was far away. I tell you, these ministers, that sometimes it's uncovered that they were involved in all kinds of sexual corruption and immorality. How could they be a sincere man and go into the pulpit and preach without repenting of their sin? Year after year, a man can fall into sin, but how can he go on and not repent? How can you, as a child in the church, maybe have lies that you tell to your parents and you come along and act like you serve God? How can you not deal with those lies? Because all the time you have those lies, you're not in communion with God. How can you come and really pray to the true God if you know that you've got open rebellion against him that you've never dealt with. You see, there's a problem here. There's a, it's a serious thing. So what can you do? What can you do? Surely you can all see that, that you have and you do take God's name in vain. Like I said before, have you ever revered his name really as you ought? I mean, even your best worship has been devoid of the honor and praise that is due to him. You never have regarded him really as you should. Your thoughts of him are always unworthy of him. My brothers and sisters, that's why God sent his son. That's why Jesus came. And that's why the insincerity that leads to hell is the kind that doesn't come to Jesus Christ with your sin. The kind that says, oh, it doesn't matter. And you go on and you never repent. 
and you never look to Jesus for forgiveness. You just go on in your indifference toward God. We all come short of the glory of God, and we're all, if we look to Jesus knowing that, and we ask him to cleanse us from all of our sin. And the Bible promises that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It says if we walk in the light instead of in the darkness, the person who takes God's name, they walk in the darkness. They ignore God and what he says. They don't deal with the true God. They live over here in a shell away from God. They walk in the darkness. But he says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So you see, this is a very, it's a very potent thing. This commandment is the one that really gets to our heart. He promises, our Lord promises that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You come to him either as the Pharisee who takes God's name in vain and says, I thank you that I'm not a sinner. I'm not like these other men. I don't do the stuff that they do. But you come and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you receive his pardon. See then that you don't take his declaration that you have sinned or that you're unworthy, that you don't take that in vain. It's a great offense to him. Or that you don't take the promise of God that no one can come to him but through Jesus Christ and that all who come to Christ will be saved. Believe in your heart that God has accepted Jesus and his sacrifice in your behalf. Believe in your heart and cast yourself upon him for the salvation that that he has promised and you will be saved. Even though that faith of yours, that very faith of yours that holds on to him is not a perfect faith. It comes short of all that it should. It doesn't believe God as fully as it should. It doesn't acknowledge sin as it should. It doesn't acknowledge his promises as it should. But if we come to him in our weakness and we realize that and we say, Lord, have mercy on me. And we take ourselves and instead of looking to what we do to save us, we cast ourselves on the Lord. Then we will be saved. We have no other place to go. Relying on yourself, out of the question. Relying on Christ, the answer to all. Let us then by Jesus endeavor to come before God with reverence and godly fear rather than as those who take his name in vain. Pray that the Holy Spirit will give us a true heart before God, a true heart of faith before God. Please stand and let's let's indeed call on the name of the Lord. Lord, when you told us that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, you didn't mean anyone who goes through a ritual will be saved, a ritual of saying a prayer. But you meant rather that whoever calls upon you, as you say in that very passage, who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth, will be saved. And we know, O Lord, that if we come to you without faith, then we are dead, we are lost. And Father, we see that we as a people, fallen people, that we do take your name in vain. Father, that we do not regard you and revere you as we should. But Father, we thank you that in the gospel, that you show us that that is so. That we have not honored the Lord our God. And in showing us that, you show us that you have provided redemption for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray, O Lord, that we would come to Christ. 
Father, it is right here where we fight the battle, first of all. Yes, we fight the battle of going and committing various sins that are brought across our path, that are temptations that come to us, of going and committing those sins. But the battle begins right in our heart. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would fight the battle, that there would be a real battle going on there, that there would be a real trust that's going on there, a casting of ourselves upon you. And Father, whenever we sin, that we would deal with our sin, even if no one on earth knows about it, that we would live honestly and with integrity before you, that we wouldn't be false hypocrites walking around, professing your name, taking your name, but taking it in vain. Father, we pray that you would be merciful to us and that if, we, if there's anyone here, Lord, who is not actually convicted of their sin or who is not actually resting in Jesus Christ, that, oh Lord, you would work in that one to make these things real to them, to cause them, Lord, to see clearly their need of Christ and that they would find salvation in him. Father, if there are those who are struggling with assurance, Lord, truly, we can be those who really believe the gospel and yet struggle with assurance. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help them, Lord, to, to see the, the, the riches of your promises and your grace. And that if we cast ourselves upon you, if we put ourselves in your hands, then we can be certain that we shall be saved. Father, give us a Give us an encouragement, Lord. Give us a freshness in our faith and in our walk. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another. That your blessing would be upon us, Lord. Help us to encourage our children. Help us to walk in the light. For Jesus Christ is the one who is the light of the world. And we desire to know him and to serve him and to please him. We know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Father, we pray that we would have faith that believes and that we would trust you as the God who is gracious and who does receive those who come to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Through faith in him, our Redeemer, that's how we come to God. Receive now the blessing of our Lord. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all of those who love the Lord Jesus in sincerity. Amen.